0: Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. hey folks welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. On this episode uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it this is my favorite podcast to date. It's with uh, somebody that I admire uh, their work professionally very much and I mean they're just a red red dude uh, So I'm talking about Hal Herring. Uh, many of you might know, about Hal, you you might listen to the podcast that he hosts the backcountry hunters and anglers podcast and blast he's really a phenomenal interviewer i'd be lying if i if i didn't give him some credit and say that when i finally decided to start this podcast that the first few episodes i wasn't just trying to replicate hal herring uh especially the podcast that i got to record with him for you know uh, the podcast and blast with him in montana Last year, I guess, like the guy was just getting the best out of me. I mean, he just understands people and he's been a journalist for a long, long time. Uh, I often describe him as, you know, probably one of the most well-respected outdoor writers of the last 20 years. He, he refers to himself as an outdoor journalist. But uh, some of his stuff goes broader than even, you know, just, I don't know. Journalism to me, I interpret that as kind of like reporting Uh, And I think some of his interpretations are just as wonderful and just as valuable. So anyway, I got the distinct pleasure of hanging out at Hal's house. I spent the night outside in his backyard in my van. Uh, We drove around. He showed me the countryside and rural, very northerly, uh, remote Montana where he lives, a really special kind of beautiful place. And we ate black-eyed peas and elk steaks and drank cold beers and talked for hours and hours and then the next morning uh got to hang out inside of his uh house there in his living room and uh with his wife and just like surrounded by stacks of books and old buffalo skulls and drank coffee and talked and talked and then went to his office and recorded this podcast so uh yeah this one's really special to me i enjoy it so much and i think you will too so without further ado here is my conversation with hal herring All right. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am on the Rocky Mountain Front, Nameless, Montana. Uh, I'm here for the BHA rendezvous, which I'll be headed down uh, towards Missoula, You know, probably after this conversation. But uh, I've had the privilege of yesterday I got over to uh, the house of one Hal Herring and uh, we had like a super rad meal, some elk steaks and black eyed peas and drove around and just showed me this country. Uh yeah, and just been talking and and having a rad time and uh now we're sitting in Hal's office, which is I told Hal his house is exactly what I would want Hal's Herring's house to look like. <laughs> and this office is too. It's a you know, like no country for old men vibes, man. There's like this paneling <laughs> in here. Uh but yeah, thank you so much, man. Uh, d- distinct privilege to be here with you. Al.
1: Glad to have you, man. I'm paying you back too for that long podcast we did in Missoula last year. I guess.
0: Yeah, dude, that was a blast. That was yeah. the, that was the most fun, one of the most fun uh, parts of that trip. Yeah, that uh, was
1: that was cool to make that connection.
0: Yeah, it was. I was very distinctly aware of. Uh, it, it almost felt like maybe being in Europe and then you meet another American in a bar, yeah. <laughs> like meeting someone else who so intimately understands the South. Yep. Uh, and when we were driving over here, we were talking about how, you yep. know, you get a bunch of recognition for, for your voice. Uh, and I, I bet, especially living out here and, and being out here for so long, it's, it'd be like having a Irish accent or something. Yeah. It's it's like a distinguishing characteristic and then I had this experience where I was eating a meal with this nineteen-year-old dude from Kuwait, like last week, and he uh, he just out of the blue he told me that I sounded like a cowboy, like I was from Texas, because I was probably you know he'd been over there in Western Oregon. That's probably the countryest thing he.
1: Yeah, you know right. I, just, I just talk like me mom, right, right, right. Ahead, right. right. <laughs> well, you were pointing out to me too that the real accent, like when you hit North Idaho to and especially on this side of the mountains on the east side is it's more Canadian, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a super distinctive accent. One time I was upstairs at my house and, uh, I was listening to my kids talking and I, and they just like, they had that accent. Cause I raised them here, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh no, what have I done? I was like, <laughs>
0: it's, it's weird. I've noticed it on my daughters. So both of my kids have like little kid voices and, you know, I know, it's not a list, but it's just kind of that. I'm a mic named Elwes, yeah, right? Right. But I hear it in them. I hear this little twang. Yeah. Which even the kind of accent that I've developed over the last 20 years in Arkansas, uh, it, I mean, it's it's different than how I used to sound. And I can still – it's just how I talk now when I'm not being cognizant of it. Yeah. If I pay attention to it, you know, I I can go back to that – Very middle America, you know. They always say St. Louis is where the newscasters train to have the most lack of accent. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now I was telling you, my mom. My mom has this kind of South City old working class accent that doesn't really exist a whole lot anymore. It's kind of become homogenized in St. Louis. But uh, yeah, just the average the average accent in St. Louis is very very neutral. But anyway, now I've heard this twang in my kids. Yeah, and it's weird. It's almost like I can imagine if I if I had married like a Brit and was living in London, and then that's what my kids sounded like. Yeah, uh, and they would. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I kind of like it though too. Like, I, it shows you. It's so illustrative of the nurture part yep. of being a person.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and uh, I don't know about fitting in so much. Like, uh, it that's part of it in high school for sure is is not so much accent as um as idioms
0: hmm.
1: you know that you use but um my father's accent was from Chambers County, Alabama and it was it was pretty fairly unadulterated you know he was educated but it yeah. was like a um it was a it was a deep south accent south Alabama and that's way different than north Alabama for yeah. sure yeah and our, and
0: that's the thing it like obviously regionally the the differences in regional uh dialect and accents like northwest arkansas my accent is really some weird conglomeration of the amount of time i've spent in the delta which is a very different accent than like up in northwest arkansas yep right uh which is very different than deep 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 south or that like aristocratic east coast south uh, but it's 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 one of the like particular things about traveling around the country that i like so much because it's yeah. it's it's like sampling local cuisine. Yep. Right? Yep. Uh,
1: and it gets homogenized now, you know? Mm. Um, I was just, I was, I've been reading this about H.L. Mink, he was a journalist like in the 1920s, 1900s. Okay. And um, he wrote a whole book on how English is spoken in America, and I'm looking for it at the library. I'm not sure I need to order it and buy it. But, yeah. Uh, it, it, that was a, and that was at a time where, um, I don't know, you know, who know I mean I I'm just interested in that always have been.
0: Well, you know what I've always struck by and no one ever brings it up and you never see it in film portrayals, but like all those, you know, founders of the country, like a lot of them would have had like British kind of accents, right? Yeah.
1: Have you ever seen that movie The Witch?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Okay, so that uh that it's a really weird movie. I can't remember what the guy's made, now I loved it. But it was about these colonists, these Puritans. They get kicked out of the community, okay, and they have to live on the edge of these woods. They filmed it in Canada or somewhere, uh, and the, and there's actually the devil, like all that that stuff in that that the Puritans were warning them yeah. about. It's 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 happening to them, right? Uh, the dude that made that movie, he sourced all his people from uh, his actors from London, you know, for the accents. So, yeah, he said, well, I mean, it's unadulterated. They've they've only been here like six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and then uh, it's funny we're going on this accent road, but uh, wh- what are they? Uh, it was called like the, like the Atlantic, like the old Atlantic accent. You know, it's what you associate with, like old newsreels. Ah, yeah, here today, we're gonna be like this, yep. and you had to go down there and get a bag of peanuts and watch Cracker Jack game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that that has gone away. But that yep. was a way that was influenced by this hyper regional holdover from british style english and then with the prolifer- uh, proliferation of a like radio and tv it started at the ed- hard edges got taken off of stuff yep uh which is so cool to go to places uh you ever you ever talk to someone who talks that like Gullah geechee patois
1: i've heard it yep
0: dude that's some wild stuff yep. man like that's that's really wild yep uh and i'm i'm I dig that it still exists.
1: Yeah. I think one of that Anthony Bourdain shows on the on the, like Bahia in Brazil. Yeah. That was one of my favorite one of his shows because um they speak Portuguese with that West African influence. Yeah.
0: yeah, And yeah. it
1: makes them these incredible folk songs. They also have these very clear Portuguese up in the northeast, but um it was it's it's like that. It's unadulterated accent, but in another language. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I I was thinking, you know, that whole coast, dude, that uh, if you go up to Rhode Island to the original fisherman and then you come down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, um, Portsmouth Island, Hatteras Island, Ocracoke, that's one of the most, like, strong accents left, and it's because of the isolation of that that coast. Um, Hatteras has an incredible accent. From the original Hatteras people. Really? Yeah. That's.
0: I'm wondering if surely someone has done some sort of long-form study on this. I um, would
1: love to see that Edisto and all that country that where the Gullah. Yeah. Um. I I did a story about this football player from there, and I wish I could remember what it was. But they, ra- they were raised on wild game and, and what they could forage. Yeah. And uh, he was just like – I didn't ever get to interview him. It was just a story about him. But it was like they were so interesting. Well,
0: you know, if you – I feel like there's this kind of growing interest in Gullah Geechee stuff recently. Uh, But, you know, that South Carolina coast, like, almost all black people can trace themselves to, like, right there. That was, like, the big entry port, right? And, you know, as as you have, like, the black diaspora across the country, you know, if you start doing this 23andMe stuff, like, people – you know, people that are considered black – like they start having you know miscegenation whatever like there's uh you start looking at the DNA and it's different right you get over there man and it's it's like straight yep. over uh West Africa or and it's weird to find these cloistered pockets of stuff like that like my dad did the testing and he was 99% West African well like blackety black 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 can right? you
1: get to where in West Africa and stuff like that
0: you can get uh You can kind of get like what the country is now, but you know, that's really among the, among the many, many, many tragedies of the Atlantic slave trade that the taking away that ability to trace back to a specific place because
1: they were harvested. Like you're, you're captured from all over
0: and then all forced together. And you know, people speak different languages, people that have different religions, like vastly different religions. Uh, different understandings of the world. Like someone right. might be from the Ivory Coast, someone else might be from far interior yep. or northern or just whatever. Uh and so it just within a generation or two it just became became one thing which That's is, actually fascinating. When well, you think about that it's you know, we talked about it last time, but I'd say you know, and I would I would say that I subscribe to, you know, a lot of ideas of like Pan Africanism and and just this uh, idea that there is a, there is a linked, uh, you know, a historical uh, belonging together of like black people throughout the, throughout the world, you know, specifically traced to, to slavery of the last few hundred years and kind of how that people were dispersed. But, you know, I'd really argue that if you're talking about a homeland of a people, African-Americans, right? I'm talking about black Americans, that this South- Tragic as the beginnings were, but, like, that's, that's what I think of as, like, where my people came from. It's, it's I, don't, I, don't, I don't have, like, a personal connection to Africa. I have a personal connection to Arkansas and Mississippi. You bet. You know, yeah. uh, because that's where these people created something new. Even the language, stuff that we associate as southern language, words like ain't and y'all that is people that don't speak english learning english uh and instead of saying you all you know saying y'all uh and that becoming so commonplace that it becomes this dominant lingual form yep and then
1: and then totally dumb uh and totally influences the the every aspect of the culture in which it it is it finds itself mm-hmm. which is i mean it's inseparable now i i go back i keep thinking about uh, I kept in touch with this woman. She's a Patricia Wesley, Patricia Jabe Wesley. She's a Liberian, um, person who came over uh, during the civil wars, okay, in the eighties, nineties, the the big big wars in the nineties. They call them the Taylor Wars. Mm-hmm. And Patricia is a po- one of her poems that I I is in my head all the time. Uh, the calabash now broken, the palm wine spilled out across the world. Mm. Was her was her mm. poem about West Africa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, she's a beautiful poet, if anybody's listening to this and wants to look up Patricia Wesley's um, books. um, I had them all, and I I still read them. I still love her poetry. Um, And she was, I don't know where she is now. She's raised her kids here with her husband, um, but uh, she was from Liberia. She was Grebo. She Uh spoke spoke Grebo, I think, um, as a child. and beautiful poet. Um, right out of this history, right out of this history and stuff, but more modern. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's still, uh, influence and stuff. Now I was, I was, I got into that because, uh, the mayor of Helena is also from, from Liberia. Um, and, uh, mayor we'll,
0: Helena, Montana.
1: Yeah. Will Wilmot Collins. Really? Uh-huh. Um, he's done a good job. Uh, he was a, he was a refugee of the Taylor Wars as well. Mm-hmm. Did, oh, so,
0: was there like a pocket of folks that came up to Montana?
1: Not so much. Um, Patricia was when I met Patricia Wesley, she was in Kalamazoo, Michigan teaching. Um, but Wilmot came to Carroll College. Okay. As a um, he 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 had a uh, both of them had a very harrowing experience in those wars. It was a pretty pretty rough gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and both of them are um, what I would call like super survivors, mm-hmm. like people that are able to. Um, Negotiate survival, you know, where a lot of people would probably not be not be around mm-hmm. um but yeah Will and i I served on a jury with Wilmot and got to know him. He was actually doing a um <laughs> to attend he was doing a child soldier psychology a child soldier um study at Carroll college okay, it was how he stayed around Helena and got to be the mayor <laughs> that's dude oh, <laughs> he was man. the foreman of our jury too <laughs>
0: that's. We were talking about it yesterday when we were pulling back up to your house from driving around. Uh, I think that fascination that we both have with... And I feel like I have to make this qualifier. Like I've, I, I could spend days telling you about all the ways I think America is fucked up. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that dude has that story and ends up in that place, in that position is so American.
1: Well, I wish more um, of our more liberal friends mm-hmm. would talk with Wilmot, you know, about like how, why is America so messed up? <laughs> yeah. And you go like, well, I, I will tell you um, why it is not so messed up. And, and we'll, we'll recognize the failings. Sure. And then I'll tell you about the successes. Well,
0: and you know what I think is...
1: Patricia would tell you the same thing. Yeah. They're also
0: coming at it from a... So, in America, we do this thing where, like, you know, if you're darker than khaki, you're black. Right. right? I think a lot of people don't know that there's... There's kind of, like, a tremendous amount of angst between black people from Africa and African Americans. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, no, i sure. Dude, there's... I think there's a... I think there's a perception that Africans think that they're better than black people from America, and I think... There's the perception that uh, like that Black Americans uh, are coddled compared to you know the realities of a post-colonial Africa. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: there's a lot of there's a lot of tension uh, that I mean hell I've run into it. Uh, the college I went to I was talking to someone and there's that's happening right now where there's a bunch of African immigrants there and them and the Black Arkansans, like, don't really mix that well. They,
1: Interesting. they don't get
0: along with each other, right?
1: I would say that was inevitable, though.
0: Hmm. Why do you think so?
1: Um, because you would – people – well, people – we all do it. Give ourselves – like, when somebody, when you hear somebody's, uh, like, real sick or they died, you go, well, well, I don't drink that many Cokes and I don't smoke.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so, like, people are looking for ways to establish themselves, right? Their, their individual, like, power. And you would say, "Well, I'm from Nigeria, and I fought my way to the United States through a scholarship." Mm-hmm. Well, these guys are just born here. Yeah, you know they don't they don't have the same they don't have the same uh, motivation and power as I do. Sure, you know I could definitely see that.
0: Yeah, there's yeah, you're right. It's, there's a lot of human nature stuff involved in that, uh,
1: and which might also blind you to um, the the history that the people that you're you know considering yourself more motivated than right (laughs) yeah you also might you know
0: on individual basis you might be more motivated than people that you encounter you know what i mean like all that stuff happens too uh or less yeah (laughs) yeah i want to double back to when you're talking about patricia because you know that's something i've really noticed is uh and i follow this instagram account and it's called poetry is not a luxury Mm-hmm. And you know, Americans a hundred years ago were much more a hundred fifty years ago maybe too, were much more consumed with poetry. Yep. Like the big American poets were like the rock stars of their day. Yep. And that's it's not a thing now. Like
1: It operates in our it's it's just as good as it ever was and it operates in obscurity. Yeah. Yep.
0: And you get like little flashes little flashes. There was that uh that uh that young uh, black female poet that just kind of had like a little spark recently on social yep. media, but I mean, most people wouldn't be able to tell you who the I couldn't tell you who the poet laureate is right now.
1: Maya Angelou. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. No, no, I, think, <laughs> I think maybe a while ago, man. Yeah. But
0: uh, man, I I really dig it for the succinctness that it can. Uh, yeah. That it can bring. And because we've talked about it, too, like, I really respond to lyricism in writing.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, when you think about it, the poets of our age are like, you were talking about Wilco the other day. And um, I was thinking about the Turnpike Troubadours, Mm. you know, Good Lord, Laurie.
0: Second time that band's come up on this trip. uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. But I was just thinking that that is a more uh, available like form of it you know mm-hmm. but I, i'll tell you this happened the other day i i had a newspaper contacted me and they wanted to do a profile of this woman here who's a um forestry she's a fire lookout okay she's and it's on this really really dramatic mountain called patrol mountain um it's it's like five thousand feet of gain to walk up to the lookout mm. and she's done this for 25 years and they wanted to do a profile of of this this woman uh she's really interesting person and I can't do it. I'm too busy working on this book. I'm under contract. And I, um, I found this guy who I barely know, but he's a great poet. He's a young guy Mm -hmm. and he's hungry enough to take this assignment, you know? yeah. And I did it because of the, the art of compression Mm. and the newspaper wanted 1000 words on, on this woman's 25 years on patrol mountain. And I was like, that's a hard assignment. Right and and I thought who can do that and it's it's this guy Noah Davis who's a poet and I called him and he wants to do it. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: that you know that idea of compression has it. It's having to subscribe to that. So you know I'm doing uh I, I'm writing fairly regular for the Sitka website right, and then sometimes I put in little excerpts or whatever in their catalogs, but uh. Like, those basically need to be a thousand words, right? You mean 850 to maybe I get to 1200, right? Which I found very difficult at first. It felt very limiting, and I didn't know how I, I was having trouble doing it. Like, it, they were kicking my ass. The Sitka wasn't, but just the assignments, they were. It's I,
1: why it's so hard to make money yeah. at that game, right?
0: Uh, But it's helped me tremendously because it makes me cut out all, you know, like, sift through the chaff yep. and then and then when i just did this article i turned in for a for backcountry journal where they were like you know you can you want to be three thousand words like whatever uh it was great because i had i just kind of had room to to yep. breathe with it yep uh but i still had been like in this training of being succinct so i it, it it's helped me a lot in the last year i i leave the superfluous stuff to the podcast and then when I'm like getting that written word I try and make it as succinct as I can And take all the shit that doesn't have to be in there out uh, And even to the point that I realized That I was starting to write songs again Like I had stopped writing songs for a long long time mm-hmm. And I started writing songs again And uh, They have a lot in common with the stuff I used to write But I I think they're better Because I'm
1: Well you practiced
0: well yeah, and I'm not yeah. I don't need to I don't feel the need to force it. Yep. You know, I don't need to I don't feel the I feel less need to impress people. Like I'm smart. You know, look how clever I am. Right. You know? Right. Uh which is I mean some of that maybe is maturity or just exhaustion from not <laughs> not accomplishing <laughs> it, you
1: know? Right. That's it. but it but it oh, that's time, you know. I mean, everybody wants to demonstrate how clever they are and have like what do they call it? The I don't even know what language it is. The mot just the right word. Mm. You know, um, they were there's an old em- uh, interview with Tom McGuane where the woman says that she says it seemed like you're obsessed with the, the mot just whatever that is the right word. Yeah, and he he says well I don't I don't think I am. I just I I try to make it as, like he said I don't believe in um in writing as uh, building a monument of accretion. You know, mm. like barnacles growing on a boat. Yeah. He said, I believe you're supposed to... Die. He said, I believe that people reading my stuff have a lot of other stuff they need to be doing. hmm <laughs> And I was like, "That's, buddy, I could write that on here on the whiteboard, like, for me as a writer. I believe that whoever picks up the stuff I'm writing and to read it is very busy. And that better be worth their time.
0: Yeah. And, but that also... I've kind of been subscribing to this idea of, like, 85%. Like, if that last 15% of trying to make something absolutely perfect will kill you and i don't know that there's that much gained from it. I Agree with that. You know?
1: No, i think you're owned to something. And i and uh, i i yeah, i totally agree with that. But that's also good for when you're working on deadline. Yeah. Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to be you're going to send your editor at that 85% most of the time. And so i think you're owned to something Yeah, there. i think that's
0: what probably did it is uh I've been – I mean, dude, just the deadlines, shit. I'll tell you what was bad, too, man, is when I figured out that, like, if I was a day late on deadlines, it probably – I mean, it wasn't in the world. Uh, well, <laughs> which, that'll kill you, too. Yeah. That's, I did that. I've done that, too. That's uh, I really had to, like, reel myself back from that, you know, because I, I do kind of work with this – like, I get it done with the immediacy of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but then Natalie Krebs said something to me as well, which was about – that not having stuff in on time is you know you're affecting other people especially people like this stuff has to be timely go to this person that or whatever right. it's it's uh, it's it's bigger than you right it's it really starts to demonstrate like a lack of consideration or class
1: well also um depending on how busy those editors are they'll shit can you they'll they'll move on and you'll never know it yeah you just come up in the meeting mm-hmm. and they say I don't know man I can I can't deal with that kind of madness let's yeah, move yeah, on yeah. who's going who's going to show up on time with with it really good it may not be you know the great, it may not be Tolstoy but Tolstoy didn't show up on time last time
0: yeah 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 <laughs> no dude I really I was really reckoning with that a lot uh a few months ago and it's important too it's important too to every while, once in a while take a take a deep breath and like really smell your own shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep, I hate
1: I I, this is not really very great. Yeah. yeah. And
0: it's like, dude, it's time to wash my ass. Yeah. Right. And yeah. You can make a bunch of excuses, or you can just get a washcloth. Right. Yep. The and
1: excuses I, are the are, are the, the just as bad as like saying the deadline don't matter. The excuses yeah. will kill you.
0: It well, it's it's I, I really do think that one of the worst things a person can do is we all lie to people, right? But when you start believing and embodying your own lies, that's real, real dangerous, man. When you're creating false narratives that you subscribe to, you're in dangerous ground. Uh, Which is like what you were talking about when you were the Roto-Rooter guy and you were fine with it while you were wearing a shirt that had somebody else's name on it. Yep. When they gave you one with your name on it, you had to go, man.
1: Yeah, I, I just didn't want to be that. Yeah. And and I like I told you, I I actually liked the job. It just was – I didn't – I mean, I, I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't want to do Roto-Rooter anymore, you know. And I, I still had to. When I, was, I just thought about this. So about not in that long either before or right after that job, I was working for this guy who was a chainsaw artist.
0: Okay.
1: And um, I was going and cutting these huge cottonwood logs and loading them on this big boom truck that he had bought. All of this stuff was like shoestring up max. Like, like we were running chainsaws with 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 the uh, teeth broken off and stuff because yeah. nobody wanted to buy another chain. And um, I won't say this guy's name, but he he made this very famous statue uh, sculpture of a, of a mama bear and two baby bears out of this huge cottonwood log. We had um scaffolding all around it and stuff and he would climb up there every day wasn't a young guy and he was kind of his last chance of making any money you know he found this thing Mm -hmm. and um i was making these things called the take me home bears it was this thing you did cut out of these cottonwood logs with the chainsaw like a paint by numbers okay and it come out and it's like this funny little bear face or something like that that he could sell right and uh I was doing that. I can't remember how this came up, but he said to me one time. He said, "You know, I'm a lot older than you. Well, he was like twice as old as me." And he said, "I gotta tell you, you make a lot of excuses when you don't when stuff ain't done right." Mm. And I and I was like, it really hurt me. Right? That's kind of a self knowledge that I didn't yeah. want. Yeah. And uh, he said, "You know, I was in the Marines and stuff." And he goes and he said, "They take you to. They tell you to take this pill box, you know, and you go and you try to take the the machine gun." Right. And he goes, you don't get to go like, I don't know, man. It was raining. My gun wasn't working and all this stuff. You know, he said, he said, you should look at that. And I did. And I, I, I I mean, I'm telling you a story today. This is like 20, 30 years later, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten it. And I've often thought, often say to myself is that, let's let's stop doing that. And I still, it's a, it's a lifelong practice. Well, yeah, you got,
0: I mean, you got to, it's not that. We're all going to engage in it, uh, but I mean, I do think there's something bordering on noble about being able to admit that, and also like admitting it publicly takes some of the sting out of it, and then lets you double down. There, yeah, I,
1: I think I had uh, I had put these saw. He was he was obsessed with not getting the saws in this gravel. We were working in this pea gravel with mm-hmm. all the things, and I had du- dulled the hell out of this this chainsaw chain and um i had said something like well there's no way to keep it up out of there if you want to do this you know this particular design mm-hmm. and he was just like you know he thought that was ridiculous of course there's a way to keep the saw out of the gravel yeah yeah right do and it, the, do
0: it different or work it, harder yeah or just take just take the responsibility for it
1: yep but um, yeah but i've never forgotten that that's a um and then when i was driving a boom truck and he had mentioned to me, he said, My telephone line going in my trailer over here is lower than that top of that boom truck. And he said, So you got to cut through. And I was at the end of the day one day, tired as hell, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember I drove that thing, I had parked, and I got there, I called him up. <laughs> that the phone wouldn't work, right? I was like, oh, Where is Don, you know? And I had taken that phone line out, mm-hmm. right? With, that, with the big, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the lifter, the boom. Dude, uh
0: that buddy of mine I was telling you about yesterday, Jay Byer, a photographer based in Utah, we were hunting and uh we were we were driving around and uh it was like I like I was just getting my ass kicked up in the mountains, right? Like I was just out of shape, kinda of fat or whatever, and getting my ass kicked. And I was talking to Jay and what I was doing was making a bunch of excuses, right? I was I was telling him like, oh, you know, like all these just but the years been so hard just we're lamenting all this shit right and uh jay is like a super kind empathetic person but he was just like dude i'll tell you the same thing i tell my kid you're the only person i can change you.
1: Nice, you know and yeah. it was
0: exactly the right thing i needed to hear and i've thought about it so many times right. since then and it's uh i mean yeah i could i could whine about whatever disadvantage and then i could also say like dude Sometimes I'm even stopping and looking at what I'm doing right now, and I'm like, dude, this is the gnarliest shit on earth. Maybe not for everybody, but for me, it's the gnarliest stuff on earth. Right now, I've been gone for three weeks almost, man, sleeping in my van. I woke up the other morning, uh, I don't know, somewhere in eastern Oregon, was like pulled up this one of those wide spots in those forest roads you know those windy roads and i'm like next to this beautiful like picturesque uh river running through and i wake up and i'm kind of like in a fog and i look through the windshield and there's these two mule deer that are just chilling right out there and it's like 455 in the morning and it's already sunlight out there and there's like this fog and i'm holy shit dude
1: I get to do this.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah man. I thought that. Yeah, and I what's, thought. you know what? Oh, i got a deadline. Yeah. Someone's letting me talk about whatever I want. Yeah. Oh, man. Get, yeah, get I hear it. you. You need to kick your own ass and then go and kick your ass again and then go work hard.
1: Right. Yeah. I've thought about that, right? And working on this book, too. Like, like, uh, I was just like, you're, you know how lucky you are to be able to do this. And even though, I mean, it has totally. <laughs> I was getting ready to go do your thing, man. I was like getting ready to start like like bemoaning the gift, right? Yeah, but like I mean, it has kicked my butt. But um, uh, it's it's still like, can you believe it? And I was telling you down there this winter, and then I, I got home in time to go do this wild ski trip in the Rocky Mountains. Mm. When I was in the winter, I was I was down south, in which case I was waking up in the rain, going, "I wish I was home in Montana. I'd go skiing." Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, you're like researching the na- the origins of the Tuskegee National Forest, like which is something I've always wanted to do all my life, mm. right? And I don't know, it, it's hard to be happy. That's what we we I talk to the like I, I'm lucky to have some friends who are like 78 years old. Yeah, and I can ask them questions about that, and that's one of the consensus. It's hard to recognize when things are going well. And when they're going really badly, you're too busy to try to fix them. Yeah.
0: yeah you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's. I, I don't think there's a – I think it's going to be human nature to, you know, to just get a little whiny, which yeah. is totally fine. Uh, It's the wallowing in it that's just – it's just unproductive.
1: Unbearable. Yeah, man. Yeah.
0: And nobody wants to be around it. Uh, uh-huh. And you can, like, boy who cried – Excuse me, Boy Who Cried Wolf with it, where you just exhaust people with that shit. And I think I've done that in my life. I have too. Uh and yeah. I've definitely cut people off that were doing it to me.
1: You know that Todd Snyder song? Um, where he goes, I'm really stressed and his and his girlfriend goes, Oh man, just give it a rest <laughs> <laughs> You know that song? Yeah, yeah. Every, I
0: have listened to a bunch of Todd <laughs> Snyder.
1: <laughs> That's an it's an incredible. He goes, Uh, how are you gonna uh I can't remember the lyrics, but he goes, I've been feeling really stressed. <laughs> yeah. give it a rest man yeah, she goes, give it a rest yeah uh, yeah you can't do that really it, it but like i said it's a lifelong practice um we we're talking about writing and um i have never won the battle where i just come in punch the clock at nine o'clock and start producing some some readable prose mm-hmm. never won that battle always put it off always come in try to do it uh read the news uh, pick up something else, and then like, oh no, it's like three o'clock. Oh no, yeah, and start working and produce some readable prose, you know. But I've always and every day though, I try, I try to fight that battle. And there are days, individual days, when I win.
0: Mm. It's and, incredibly heartening to hear, man. Yeah. Uh, what Natalie Krebs told me that too, man. She told me that. Uh, I mean, cause she's she's like really a very good journalist right she she's a
1: very good journalist and she's pretty she she really produces quite a bit
0: yeah and yeah. she told me that she's pulling all nighters to get stuff in uh, I mean you know it's good to aspire to not be like that but it's good to know that people that you respect what they're doing it's still happening to them
1: yeah. are
0: you at the are you at the point wh- where you consider yourself to be good at writing
1: no that's a daily battle too um, I'm at the point where I've known a few tricks, mm. and um, I have a few uh, formulas that have worked before. That when I'm stuck, I can go, I can rely on those, and that's like in creation of scene. Yeah. Um, instead of like telling people, you know, the show don't tell rule or whatever, um, I can I can draw on things I've done before. And say I that worked. I, I'm stuck. I can't. I can't reinvent the wheel. I'm on deadline, so I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna write a scene. And once you start writing, there is a kind of psychic breakthrough there that lasts for you know ten minutes, thirty minutes, maybe an hour, and you get stuff done. And and I've done it so many times. But you did. I used to have to Google my stories to prove to myself that I had done this before successfully.
0: You That's know? awesome.
1: I mean. I mean it's it's kind of a painful like way <laughs> It's kind of a painful way to make try to make a living, right? Because it it you got you do sort of reinvent the thing every day and it's hard. I it's, it's so hard.
0: <laughs> well it's no it's what it is we talked about this before we started recording, man. It's that it's that perpetual angst. Yep. Right. That is I find to be a motivating factor. Yep. Uh and, like, the downside of that is that you get to be angsty. Yep. You know, or you get to be anxious. or you Like, there are some people that are unaffected in a way that I, I cannot comprehend. Yep. You know, just like shit doesn't bother them. You know, they're they're not wringing their hands about stuff. Uh,
1: Probably not waking up at 4.05 with yeah. their head showing them, like, horror movies of their own. <laughs> yeah 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 uh of your know, own making
0: my you know what's crazy too is most of my nightmares aren't like someone murdering me it's it's that i've behaved in a way that i'm ashamed of yeah like how you know i'll be in my dreams being like oh my god how do i get away from this this yep. all-consuming shame yep. and but the good part of that is when you wake up and it's a dream, and just the relief. Yep. You're like, oh my god, I didn't yeah. do that thing. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, that's probably diagnostic of. It probably know, is. I, I was
1: just thinking, one of mine is always things left undone that you know are going to create a uh, resulting catastrophe, but you can't really figure out exactly what they were. Mm-hmm. Things left undone, and that's yeah. deadline pressure. You know, that's ingrained, like.
0: Uh. I mean we've also talked about how you know i I think by probably your standards and by a lot of people's standards, you've managed to carve out this really kind of magical life of self-determination and travel and going places and meeting people and whatever but that that hasn't that has not transferred uh itself over into the realm of you know. Uh, financial like no, stability, it has, right? It has not. Uh, yeah. but
1: experientially, it, yes.
0: Yeah. Do you <laughs> do you are you at a point where you ever wish it had been more comfortable financially, or do you think that the like we we all make compromises, we all negotiate for what we're doing in our lives, right? Uh, do you feel like this was this has been like a a good well-rounded compromise
1: um (laughs) that's a great question i don't think so um uh i asked my kids that like did they ever feel deprived of stuff Mm -hmm. because of my choices and my daughter said no um my son said at times and uh, he's working full time, and I notice he he's real into making some. Maybe, well, he's he cowboy, so he's not like trying to make a million dollars. But he's real into having a nice truck and and making payment, you know, and, and paying stuff off and yeah. making money. He works all the time, and uh, I think maybe that's a result of some of that. Um, but uh, no, I'm not sure, man. It's too that's too hard experientially for me. It was a huge deal. I'm fishing in Alaska. Um, I was free to go to Alabama when my dad was alive. My father was still kicking you know, mm-hmm. and work down there for him and do stuff on our farm. I was free, yeah, but the freedom comes with a with the with the cost in my case of financial stability of any sort yeah, and there were moments of um where you just can't you just don't have any money yeah and you were we, you and I were talking yeah, about yeah, that yeah. and like what that really feels like and that's tough. Um, there's a kind of, uh, despair there that, uh, I don't know, maybe it's good for you to experience it. I don't think so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I used to, I realized that what I think I was starting to do, or maybe I wasn't starting out. I was just doing it is I was like kind of complaining to my friends that, uh, that just had like, you know, I mean, I got a lot of friends that make six figures, right? Six figures in Arkansas is pretty good, especially yeah, you was, and your wife both make six figures right right uh, and one, I don't think anybody really wants to hear that, and two i mean, I don't want their life, you know, and i'm it's right. not it's not even a condemnation of their life, but it ain't for me
1: well, here's the thing so there's a there's a trick in the question there's a catch twenty two or whatever because um I kind of tried to do other stuff that would make you more financially stable. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I, I just, it's, for some reason I couldn't do that. And I always considered that a weakness, by the way. I didn't, I, I, I'm not this guy who goes, no, it's going to be the oddest of nothing. I don't believe in that. Yeah, um, I considered that a weakness. Not being able to take a regular job if needed and stay on it. Um, I considered that a weakness, not a strength. Uh, But it was my weakness, you know, Um, I was great at seasonal work where like doing, I was telling you, pine cone harvest and and working the white bark job, best job I ever had tree planting, running tree planting crews, doing trails because there was an end to it. Yeah. And then you would spend all your money and you'd be broke again. But uh, there was an end to it. And I could go back to a self-directed life.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, me and Mary Ann are, t- are trying to find that balance, and I don't actually feel like we're that far off from it. Uh, You know, my push to try and do that was me being a firefighter, like yep. getting this municipal firefighting job, which the work I enjoyed.
1: I was going to say, those stories are – I mean, that's that's a great way to make it.
0: Yeah, man, and, and, and you know, when I got into it, I didn't realize how coveted a job it was. Right. I mean, like I worked with dudes. They, they applied every year for 10 years to get that job. Yeah. And that, that wasn't the case for me, like. I tested. I didn't realize how many people tested for it. And, you know, you're talking about where I was at, like 1,200 people went for the test. You go to Dallas, man, there's like 6,000 people trying to get right. that job. And because there's a stability to it, right? And Is that uh, a union job? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good job. It's a union yeah. job, man. Like pretty good benefits, like good pension. Shit, my first captain, he like got out of high school, went to the Navy, did his four years, got on the fire department. He was like 22. And he was 48 when I was working under him. And he had one more year he had to give it to where he could retire. And he had busted ass. He had gotten up to like captain and then worked a bunch of overtime and set his pension. And so he could retire at fifty and get ninety eight thousand dollars a year Holy in smokes. perpetuity. Wow. Living in a place that doesn't have the same cost of living as like some of these joints out here.
1: Yeah. Uh Wow.
0: And dude, honestly the disadvantage he gave himself is when he was forty-seven, he met this like thirty-year-old woman and had a kid, mm-hmm. and so he had like a twenty-two-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh-huh. And I said, "Man, you was a, you are free, yeah, you were chilling, dog, <laughs> yeah, that's wow." <laughs> and now you're now you're, and I mean, dude, he was obsessed with his kid, like he was. He was glad to have it, so joyful when he yeah. was around him, man, and just like just tickled, be sitting there giggling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but no, man, that job, and I had kind of. I had resigned myself to it, and maybe one day on this podcast, I'll, like, go into all, like, how I got out of it, but, like, I got run out, the fire department, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, I got run out of there, uh, and ultimate, I mean, one probably the hardest shit I've ever been through, and ultimately so good for me because I was about, I was about to give in and just compromise who I was, right? Mm-hmm. And I was gonna, I was just gonna, I was just gonna be somebody that was not authentic to me. Mm-hmm. And the way that I was having to be to, to survive—I mean, that's a—it's a giant frat house, right? You spend a third of your life living in basically a giant frat house, mm-hmm. mixed in with all the machismo of all these Type A personalities. Right. That is—that is a prerequisite for going into burning buildings, right? Right. But. Like, what I was bringing home, the always being on the offensive, like brutalizing somebody verbally before they got yep. a hold of you, yeah. like that don't work when you come home. Yep. Uh, and and then seeing that turn two to where – and I always thought that I didn't do – I mean, I, whatever. I didn't do it near as much as some of those guys, but when I got a little bit of time on, when I had rookies under me, I would – I'd let him. I wouldn't say stuff, wouldn't say stuff. And then whenever – you know, some kid would, like, be feeling himself. And since I didn't ride his ass, he'd try and get one in on me. Yeah. And so then I'd just fucking destroy his ass, man. (laughs) I mean, just grind him down to nothing, which is you – it's not good, but it was the way the system was set up. Right. And so I can't change the system. I just had to get out of the system. And I was trying to stay – like – the fire department actually had to throw me out, like white blood cells. Mm-hmm. You know, it could not tolerate me the same way I could not tolerate it. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm getting to do something that's way more representative of who I am. And
1: uh, well, it's kind of like I was. We were just talking about. It. It's like um, I can't imagine really what job I would have had. You know, that you could stay with. Yeah. I mean, I'm an incredibly adversarial person. Mm. And, um, and I, uh, I, whatever that hormone is, it's released when all the elk are running in the same direction. Yeah. And they all feel good about it. And, or, or like at a, a political rally, you know, and people are like, yeah, Bill, you know, oh, I love Bill, you know, and you're like bonding with all these people because you all love Bill. Mm-hmm. I don't have that. yeah just got a
0: contrarian
1: streak i have a contrarian streak and it's not but it's never been contrarian for contrarian's sake Mm. and i can spot that a mile away
0: yeah yeah
1: um it's never been that it's like um and i I don't want to try to be self-righteous either but, but it's like an insistence on what is real what is true regardless of what i wish it was hope it was believe it is what is it actually you know and that just makes it pretty difficult it's like in the the bullshit meter of somebody who's done journalism for a long time is just like pegged off the uh, off the ten you know, yeah, i mean you're just like going dude i you know i i mean i i i find like that uh true believers book that um hofer um that was like i was reading that it's like studying an alien species of like these people who like believe in political movements and they you know I mean, I get it. It's not like military. I can I get people in the military where you go, all right, go assault that castle. Yeah, that that is totally. That's been my DNA. Like my dad was in World War II. All our people were in the Civil War. You sure. know, running into the guns. <laughs> I get that part. But the idea of um, like like just like believing in something that's not true. Because it's convenient and stuff or, or saying stuff like that. Like we were talking about being in the PR business mm-hmm. where you got to like, you got to give them the, the story, whether it's true or not. And I just, I couldn't ever do that.
0: Well, that's, well, it's because it's on, there's something in your nature that that's untenable and, you know, yeah. like you can call it bullshitting or dressing stuff up. It's, it's just lying. Yeah. Right. Or I talk about like authenticity a lot, but. Or it, cherry picking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, that, that idea of being adversarial, I mean, I've got it too. It's lessened. I don't feel the need to be, to put my finger in people's eye the way I used to when I was young. Right. Like, I used to pick fights, I think, a lot. And I don't, and that was based a lot in discomfort with myself, I came to realize. Mm-hmm. And so as I've gotten slightly yeah, that's more a comfortable. Big yeah,
1: I get that too. I see that. Uh, yep. So. I know that one
0: it's but i also think that it's not that there's a better way there's just a a better way to be yourself like that is that's just part of me man like right and a lot of the strengths or what you know that i have come from that yep it's but like everything there's two sides of it yep. and so the keeping that shit in check uh being able to work hard is really is is a strength of mine yep but i'll work to the point that I neglect shit that I shouldn't. Yep. You know? And yep. uh like Marianne's is is good on about that and telling me, you know, she doesn't she doesn't care how much we have if you know the person that she's linked her life to and like had children with is not there right. to share in the the small regular things.
1: Right. Yeah, I get that. You, you that that's a there is no uh It's hard to find any kind of balance like that. One of the things that got me on this long project I'm on is, um, I was accustomed to doing stories where I disappear into completely, and I ain't taking out no trash. I'm not. If I'm if I'm cutting firewood for the year, it's after like like because I couldn't work that day for some reason. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty much unreachable during those times, and that was okay because those times ended. And we were talking about, like, when you're at home, you're very present for your kids. Yeah. You know, those times would end, and then I would be at home, and we'd go to fish the Missouri River for catfish, and we'd stay out three days, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of worked out. There was a kind of weird, perverted balance.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know? Um, but that, it's 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 dangerous. It's hard to be self-directed and be married and have a family. Unless you can't do anything else, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, I always thought, uh, there's this guy who's a really, really awesome songwriter, this Arkansas dude, his name's Adam Fawcett. And, I mean, to the point that it's worth people listening to this guy. Like, fucking amazing. Gorgeous voice. And also this weird juxtaposition with what he looks like and what you'd think he sounds like. And then this voice that is, I mean... Getting up in there to like angelic being a, a descriptor, right? But I remember he told me this one time. He was he was like, this is all I can do. The only thing I can do is write songs and sing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, uh, I like that. And also it's it bums me out because yep. I like the idea of being able to – I know that I can do other stuff. It's not even a matter of I can't do stuff. It's that I don't want to – and i i would be diminishing parts of myself and i think a lot of the best parts of myself whatever it is i do have to contribute to you know this
1: yeah that's a shit show you know that's a real thing what do you you know give me what you got yeah and maybe that i mean you know if that ain't selling insurance and making that early six figures then that's what you can't sell the insurance yeah and uh, this this is a, it's a there's a lot of nuance as they like to say to this conversation, because there ain't one answer.
0: Yeah, and it's absolutely. It's not just like individually based; it's situationally based. Situationally
1: based. And I, I was thinking about in uh, we were talking about yesterday too. Is like balance in 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 that there's a yoga thing. I I hear this voiceover all the time, you know, and they go like, when doing those standing on one foot poses, balance is not fixed, you know. The world changes, and the concept of balance changes with it. And I was like, "That's pretty profound, you know." Yeah. And that's that's the, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, you could use that for a metaphor for for the rest of your life too. The standing on one leg with your in the whatever pose, right? And the balance is not fixed, and you're not going to always find it.
0: Well, the wobbles part of it, right?
1: The wobbles part of it. There you go. Like I go There's through the songwriter part. <laughs> I go
0: through these stages where and. Marianne has seen this a million times to where, like, I'll get hardcore working out, right? And I can be really good at it, right? And, like, run a whole bunch and lift weights and, like, eat super clean. And then I wobble, I wobble to the other side to where I'm, I'm, like, as disgusting an American consumer of, <laughs> of nourishment as I can possibly be. Yeah. Right. To hell, it's, I've seen it happen on this trip. Right. Like I was living real clean, working out and stuff. And then I'm like, I've, I've leaned a little too far into the eating bullshit on this deal. Uh, and so when I get back home, I'm going to have to swing it back. And so I think for me, you know, I'm trying to maintain the middle of that metronome, yeah, but with the understanding that it will wax and wane. Like most of the time I don't imbibe, right? Like I used to, I used to hang out and kind of party a lot when I was younger. And then I just stopped and man, I hadn't drank a beer. I hadn't drank a beer since like November. I drank half a beer in in Utah and just like couldn't even finish it. And man, there's been some times on this trip where like I thought the right thing to do was to get a head buzz, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about like falling down drunk guy. Clark described towns, Van Zant in this way, uh, on that. You're seeing a documentary Heartworn highways. Oh yeah. Uh, and Guy Clark's, he says about Townsend. He's like, man, I saw him do stuff when he was, you know, a little drunk, a little stoned, man, just just fucked up. That was amazing. Yep. And I know exactly what he's talking about. And I don't think that's the way to be most of the time. But sometimes, like we were talking about with your wife yesterday, on a beautiful, the first warm, kind of into spring day in Arkansas, where. All you smell at night is privet blossoms and honeysuckle. Yeah. Like sitting there and drinking drinking half a bottle of cheap wine with the woman you're in love with is the absolute right thing to do.
1: Yeah, you bet. It's a I I think about that Towns Van Zandt thing a lot though, because um he wrote you know the old saying he was sucking on the bottle and now the bottle's sucking on him. Yep. Um, like the end of that thing is so horrible. Like, where he's like, at one point he's in a wheelchair begging him to give him some whiskey. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, he's like, you keep promising, and you're basically done. Like, like it's the worst thing ever. Um, and I think it's fascinating. Um, it's the old, I did a series on um, these young people that are all on this drugs, these methamphetamine. This is early in the methamphetamine thing. And one of the gal's mothers described it as the ultimate vampire story. Oh wow. Because a vampire in, in mythology can't attack you. You have to invite it in. Mm. It taps on the window, right? Yeah. So it's up there flying around like whatever, dark shadows or whatever, you know. And but you have to invite it in. And I watched that Towns Van Zant documentary, and um he he wanted to be this hell bent drunken, like anarchist, wild man artist. And he practiced that until he got it. And then it got him.
0: Yeah, he also struck me and I like I don't know the guy. I didn't know the guy, obviously, or whatever, but I like, listened
1: to his son's podcast that which is great. Oh, JT Van Zandt? Yeah. yeah,
0: you know, which is man, that he looks so much like his daddy. It's like that, he? I've
1: never met him. Yeah. Have you
0: ever seen his picture?
1: Yep. Dude, I, I mean he
0: looks like I mean, I've never That's met right. him either, but it's uh you know, as they would say in the South, like, you look like your daddy spits you out. Yep. Uh you sure do favor. <laughs> <laughs> but man, yeah, you know, he did that hard living stuff, but he just strikes me as such a beautiful, gentle, innately good kind of person, you yeah. know. Uh, which that I think you, came through with all that.
1: It did. And I think that I think what you're doing is you're so sensitive. I, I think people Bob Dylan's an interesting question in there because he was and he was able to channel all that wow, that poetry mm-hmm. and that that weird energetic currents in in, in the world. Without it destroying him, yeah, but buddy, that's a real rarity
0: yeah it's 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 a it's living life on a razor's edge
1: it is and and like with Towns van Zandt, I think he had to shut down i mean eventually you become addicted to alcohol, you know, yeah, but he just had to shut he probably had to shut down parts of that sensitivity in order to to make it, you know after after playing at night um you know
0: who knows i'll be honest with you i revere the guy so much and i'm not i'm not a person who really like reveres folks or but i just his songs have been so influential in my life in so many different ways that i'm i actually feel myself i don't want to i kind of don't want to make too many suppositions about him because it's correct I, I feel like it's not my place you know yeah I, mean? I
1: agree with that and
0: thing. like we're i mean shit if we're being real we are we are probably not far removed from his son you know i mean like right. i know people that know is that know jt van Zant and think he's a great dude you know right and i don't want to i don't want to be talking about somebody that one day i might meets daddy right here uh, i hear you
1: yeah i was just thinking of of the the curse of sensitivity though
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's ooh, dude, you're hitting you're hitting close to home. Uh I don't think this is revealing too much, but I was like in a like a counseling situation and this this person was describing me as a very masculine man, right? Mm-hmm. And I hear that a lot. Like there's this interpretation that I'm like really tough or like uh physically tougher than the the average. Mhm. Which, I, I mean, I really don't know if, if – if that's true, it's more a result of the uh, <laughs> the depredation of the average American man than any <laughs> toughness I necessarily have. <laughs> the bars falling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was telling him too, I was like, dude, I just feel like – I feel like this super squishy, uh, just really sensitive person. You know, like what what I'm doing in my private moments – is no one would be like that dude is man that's a real rugged american man mm-hmm. they'd be like this dude is a goofy nerd
1: mhm
0: uh yeah man and it's I, I i think it's actually i think it's a strength
1: i think it's a strength i think it's it's dangerous like anything else um uh that you know like uh, people who are incredibly empathic Mm. Now, that's a difficult path in the world.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Marianne is like that, and its I've seen it. She has to work hard not to be consumed by other people's shit.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: You know, and I kind of have to be – I have to work hard not to be consumed by my own shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was listening to this interview with Harry Cruz, who's that Georgia writer. Okay. He's died in the last 20 years or so, but he, he wrote a book called A Childhood, the biography of a place that's gotten – I was just reading The New Yorker. It's gotten famous again it's so it's a great book okay and um he he had this interview where he said i i have tape recorded myself interviewing people and I take on their accent by the end of the interview. yeah, he said, i literally have i'm such an empath that and it and it it was difficult for him i mean he was a well he book he was a drunk he was an alcoholic mm-hmm. in in his later years, but um he was he that, I, that makes sense to me like that. It's very hard to, to be empathic and sensitive enough to do the songwriting or the writing or the art or whatever. Like Towns Van Zandt did it. Yeah. I mean, I was listening to Be Good. Tanya's doing the, his version of Waiting Around to Die. Yeah. That's and it song. put me right back to Towns Van Zandt. Like I, I went back to start and listen to all that.
0: Dude, that uh, you have, you listen to. We'll just talk about Towns Van Zant somewhere. Have you listened to <laughs> you listen to Live at the Old Quarter? Nope. Dude, that is. And to anybody listening, that's
1: that's Don't my say number that one. Again.
0: It's called Live at the Old Quarter. Okay. It's a when I first got it, it was a two disc CD set, and it's Towns Van Zandt just by himself playing like in a bar. I think like either Old Austin or right outside of there's like seventies. Mm-hmm. Like hear the tinkling glasses and stuff. Real cool mm-hmm. vibe and uh you know he has like a little it's like got the in between song banter and like him telling some uh telling some uh like goofy jokes like he's got this joke in there that says uh what's small and white and crawls up your leg uncle ben's perverted rice yeah. <laughs> right like that kind of yeah. shit yeah. Uh, yeah. and man it is the I, I think still for me man it's like the s- single greatest collective just presentation of a musician cool i can't wait to see that made a hard turn in my life and when i found it i was in college and i was driving my little jeep up to school to to the library to fuck around and not write some paper i was supposed to do man. right and i was listening to the school radio station and my buddy baldy uh ran it he just played that and i heard the very beginning of it and I, like, sat out in my car. It's, it's like moments I, like, don't I, – I don't even know if someone could do that now because of the way music is consumed. But I heard the very beginning of it. I don't know. It was probably an hour and a half long. And I just sat out there in that Jeep underneath a streetlight and yep. listened to the whole thing and just, like, smoke cigarettes. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. man, dude. And uh, And it's like, dude, even that, I think that smoking cigarettes is not good. <laughs> and, but I think that the absolute right thing for, for me to do at that moment yep. was listen to Towns Van Zandt and somehow me lighting up cigarette after cigarette made it better and more impactful. Yep. Uh, and that's
1: that, funny that, that thing you're dumb about of the, uh, we call that like, like going to the funions, like when you're like abandoning your like clean living and shit. You yeah. Know? Uh, but that, uh, we were done about cigarettes last night and like in my early years like in new orleans
0: mm-hmm.
1: sitting on that balcony smoking a camel filter yeah was like one of the best things in the world you know um and it was romant- it was like romantic Yeah. it was this whole idea of uh live fast die young you know, and um, just having that thing. And then, like, we were talking about when American Spirits came, I was like, these are health food cigarettes. These are good. These are yeah, good yeah, for yeah. you. <laughs> no, it's
0: still bad. It's still bad, man. No, I mean, they'll kill you. Yeah. Well, I, but
1: I, what they do, though, what I what I got rid of them was um, they diminished my ability to, say, go ski mountaineering. Yeah. Or to elk hunt. And uh, that really happened. I, was, I bought a bunch of drum. And I was hand rolling drums yep. during hunting season. And I actually bought the tobacco as kind of a spiritual thing, like for hunting and, mm-hmm. and like the Native American tradition, whatever, which I don't really know what that is, but you know. Yeah. And uh, I started just like power smoking these drums, you know. And then I was, I killed this mule deer and I was hiking up there and I was like, whoa. Like like some, <laughs> I've really deprived really cut back on my airspace here. My VO two max is going way. That down. drum too.
0: I remember because I used to roll drum and back in college, and I remember yeah. I remember having a switch to smoking something with a filter because I was waking myself up from coughing. Yep. Because I w- when I laid back, it would all settle on me. Yeah. Uh, and you hit them just as hard. Yeah. Like
1: like uh, there's some, and then when I was sawing, a, an incredible thing was to you're thinning timber right and you get paid by the acre and you'd run a tank of gas and and then you would stop and roll a cigarette mm-hmm. fuel back up kick kick back and smoke that cigarette and that would in the end of the day like that's you're that's really starting to cut your wind wind
0: yeah they they, they stack up yeah uh what i man what i really had to do with them was I had to reach the realization that it was just something that I was never going to be able to have in balance. Like I couldn't, You're, I couldn't drink, drink a couple beers and smoke a few cigarettes every now and then. Like if I started lighting them up, I was going to smoke. So I just can't ever smoke one
1: again. Yeah, that's me too. The idea of control is not there. Yeah, I, I told you that story. I was uh, writing that chapter in my gun book about Ned Christie. He was an Oklahoma um, Cherokee outlaw. Yep. He never got taken. He was he was just he was in like, dozens and dozens of gun battles with U.S. marshals. And him and Ezekiel Proctor would go out and they would smoke and, and the sun would come up. And they they weren't like full time outlaws by any means. They had a farm and a gunsmith shop and a sawmill. They were they wanted to be left alone. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, anyway, they would smoke and like plan out the day. Proctor was his best friend and another incredible gunfighter. And I started like, man, that's such great. And I'd buy cigarettes, and I'd just smoke one you yeah. know, early in the morning. And then you like, coming home at 10 from this office, mm-hmm. hiking across town, got to get another one. You know, and then after supper, you're going to get another one. And then have a couple beers and have another one. And then you're out of – it's totally gone.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be able to – I if I sat in this office and I allowed myself a cigarette, I would just be in here. Smoking. Smoking <laughs> and drinking, drinking black coffee. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, – man, I want to reference something that you just brought up. You are talking about those outlaws because we talked last night about the – we were talking specifically about like the Cache River and when they – in Arkansas when the Corps Engineers tried to straighten yeah. the Cache River. And the reason they had to abandon it was because some good old boys down there didn't want it. They didn't want to lose what they had. Right. Uh, and, the, you know, the same way that I hear you talk about – uh these rivers up here, right, and these watersheds up here, man, like like the cash and the white and the bayous in Arkansas are just as important and, and uh and and uh impactful to the people that live down there and you know these might be people that i would wouldn't want me wouldn't let me step foot in their house, whatever right, right, but there's something I appreciate about the fact that what they did was they just burned up all that equipment until. Those folks couldn't get insurance on it anymore, and they had to stop the project. And they protected something by uh, by being outlaws and by doing—I mean, committing crimes. But I guess because I like the outcome, I'm all right with the crime.
1: I get it too. And I—I don't know uh, where—I don't think you ever know where that line is. You know, I was—I was doing when I was in Alabama. God, I I was going to tell you about this Fort Gadsden that they're doing—they're doing an archaeology on the. Apalachicola River okay but it Fort Gadsden was a, the Brits had, had armed this fort to mess with the United States after the War of 1812 okay. they left them all kind of armaments and stuff and uh, the guys who showed up there was a guy named Francis the Prophet he was a Creek Indian and then that we People don't know this, but we had our own, you know what Jamaican Maroons were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we had our own Maroon community. Yeah, yeah, lots in Florida. Yep, and uh, they were, and they the, the majority of them went to Fort Gadsden at one point to, to stage a like a real war, right? And this was with the Red Stick Creeks, who were influenced by Tecumseh, and they just said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not gonna have plantations. We're not gonna be capitalists. We're not selling. He, uh, Francis the Prophet, hated the domestication of animals. Mm. It was one of his things. He had a. He was a. He was a revelator, right? He he had visions, and he burned his house and his store, and he moved down to Fort Gadsden to take part in the war, and eventually he was killed. Um, but they weren't doing it. They were people who said, "No, we're not gonna do it." We're not going to assimilate. We're not going to let you t- there. You cut down all the trees, right? You know, we're not going to do it. And those Cache River people were the same. And there's something admirable about that.
0: Yeah, you know, but the – so, again, with the balance, the flip side of that is uh, – do you know much about, uh, like, the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot and yep, shit, man?
1: not a lot, but yeah.
0: Well, you know, like, they were trying to force this complete – agrarian return.
1: Yep. Year and, zero.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. to where, and it, to, there wasn't even like, it wasn't even systemic. Like, it wasn't like the pogroms in uh, Soviet area Russia. Right. It was, uh, it was, if you were a doctor, they killed you. If you wore glasses, they killed you. He killed they the killed. ballet. Dude, the Cambodian ballet. Do you know that they killed, so that country had, had a popu- had a population of 4 million people And by the time Pol Pot was done, it was 2 million people. They killed like 50% of the human beings that lived in that country with no real end. Right. Like there was no, there was nothing to get back to.
1: Right. Well, I think in in any time, and this goes for the United States of America right now too, anytime you think that you're going to turn the clock back to some uh, mythical golden age, Mm. you're in big trouble. Yeah that shit don't work and it yep. doesn't happen and and human beings do not go back to anything ever you might do that on an individual basis but you're not it's like the same river twice right you're not the same person so it's not going to be the same but but you don't go back you have to go forward into whatever it is now you can navigate that you can guide that you, you can, can make a lateral
0: go, move probably yep, yeah
1: you can make a lateral move and you could even go to war for a better future but you can't go to war to return to agri- agrarian paradise. Mm. That's 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 not going to work.
0: Well, and that's only uh that's that grass is greener on the other side shit. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you don't know what you don't know what starvation is because the rains didn't come. Right. You know Right. What I mean? That's
1: right. When there's a there's a thing uh Hemingway, I think it's in um Not a Farewell to Arms. It's a, it's the one about the uh, the the Spanish Civil War. And he's with that guy. He's a peasant. He's in the rebels. Um, they're against Franco. And the guy's telling him, he goes, Man, when when we win, which they didn't, right? They yeah. lost. But he said, We're gonna have to kill so many of these people. He was like all excited. <laughs> you know, he goes, We're just gonna have in order to get the future that we want, in order to get a better future, we're just gonna have to get rid of all these people. It's it's you know and he and him and the Hemingway character is like, you know, he's kind of like he's he's doesn't like that. Yeah, because it's... The dude's well, excited about wiping out people that he doesn't like.
0: Well, I mean, like, uh, look at the French Revolution, right? And Robespierre. Yep. Two and a half years later, that shit turned around, man. And he was over with. Yep.
1: You know, Nobody was ever free enough for Robespierre. Yeah. That's
0: my favorite quote. Dude. <laughs> he, he's a... You know, you know, I've been working on this. I've been working on this remodel, and what I've been doing is there's a really cool... Uh, there's, a, there's a YouTube channel. It's called, like, people profiles okay and it'll be i mean it might be an hour and 15 minutes long like each episode and it'll just be in it there's a little color added to it because the guy reading it is like this cool british voice uh but it'll be just great interesting people from history and so it started i was kind of going down this weird uh hole with like despots right Mm -hmm. uh and then that filtered off. So, you know, it's it's not just like Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin. Then it's like the subsequent people. It's Goebbels and Himmler. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, then that b- pops you over to like Idi Amin and like all that shit. Uh, and it's, it's really fantastic to just listen to that. I bet. In long form while you're you know I'm like tearing down walls or yeah
1: that's awesome and and one of the things like especially like ED Amin, mean is um it this shows you the the links to which the logical extrapolation of people's um like like will to power mm-hmm. like the nietzschean will to power um and I, you everybody people liked ED Amin mean when he was young and he was a boxer yeah yeah
0: and, yeah and um
1: yeah. he was he was a very interesting person
0: the colonialists loved him and they like even with his his penchant for violence, they kept like promoting him and stuff. Yep. right?
1: yeah. Until he made him made him call him the conqueror of the British Empire. Remember, he he, he put CBE on top of his name. He put all <laughs> sorts. I mean, he
0: put all sorts of stuff. It's like, uh, uh, not uh, like Kim Jong Un. Is yep. that the one who's in now? I get. I think so. What was it Kim Jong Il, the one before him? Yeah. But whatever, man. They, he's got some. You know, he's got it in the North Korean zeitgeist that he invented the burrito.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> That's you know, like some, what an insane yeah. thing to put on there. <laughs> like right. I've been to the Burrito in nineteen eighty three. Right. That's awesome. I and mean, everybody has to agree. Uh Edi yeah. Amin made everybody win, you know, let him win at soccer and stuff.
0: Dude. Th- imagine how terrifying. That's the thing about not knowing not knowing where there's a a guideline. Uh there was that guy Eamon Goth, who was uh he was a dude that Ralph Fiennes played in Schindler's List. Uh huh. That just that monster. He was a commandant of um, yep, Auschwitz, gotcha. right? And I watched an interview with uh in that movie, they they talk about like he's got this uh it's like I mean slave, like you know, housekeeper lady. Yeah. And and she survived, and she talks about how in the face of all the barbarity I mean, as awful as human beings have ever behaved, what was the most one of the most difficult things to endure was that there was no right answer, there was no way to avoid. Like he would just wake up and he'd go on the on the on his balcony and he'd shoot people. Right. There was no way to not offend. There right. was no way to be innocent, uh, and to deal with a person. That might be one of the more most dehumanizing experiences someone could have, which mm-hmm. is there is no right way to exist. Right. Th- there's no way to 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 make it safe for you. Right. Deplorable as the behavior you might have to engage in might be, like you can't even guarantee yep. your existence.
1: Right. Yeah. That's an absolute absolute power. You know, it doesn't work out well.
0: Yeah, and it's oh, dude, that all of that stuff. Uh, now what was positive is I did like my one week listening to just like the monsters of humanity. Yeah. And then that took me <laughs> then that took me into other stuff. Boudicca and uh
1: Yeah, that's a that that movie the there's this weird kind of campy uh old movie. It's in color about Boudica. And it's a freaking great movie. I saw it like late night one time when I was a yeah. kid. And um that movie is it's awesome. And it's
0: that's an incredible story. Dude, really interesting. Joan of Arc, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but
1: one of the things we were talking about, um, and this goes back to like West Africa and um, history in the United States, is like if, and current events in the United States, if you're not unified, mm-hmm. somebody's coming for your stuff. Yeah. And uh, that Boudicca story was she in that movie, I don't know what the real history is. I know there's a statue of her on the Thames River, you know? Yeah. But she rode around to all the Celtic bands. And she just said, we have a single enemy in Rome, and we have to stop killing each other and selling each other out. And then they were able to make that stand, right? And they burned London.
0: Well, you know what? So when she went around and she rallied everybody, uh, so she had, like, some position. And then the Romans, uh, they assaulted her two daughters in front of her. Yep. And she took her daughter. In order to
1: bring her to heel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: To break her. And... She took her daughters around with her, and she said "Look at you know and she used she said, "Look at what they're doing to our children to our daughters right and like I think that was one of the ways that she kind of like uh cemented it yeah uh and i don't she she ultimately ended up not being successful right like she died they
1: they they made another stand after they killed everybody in London um the legion they the people went back and they brought, and I can't remember who the general was." But he wiped her out. Yeah. But he was so impressed with their performance on the battlefield that he wrote it all down. Mm. And so we have the record because of their their uh, impressive like uh, performance on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, she's considered like a a modern day British hero. Yep. Uh, which is which is so uh, which is so interesting because then you like. You know they're they're revering this person that fought against the colonization of the British Isles, and then they became the greatest
1: greatest colonizing con- force ever. Yeah, every, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, um, you would. Uh, I'm I'm gonna work on this for this chapter about the Appalachian National Forest, mm-hmm. but that Fort Gadsden was interesting. Um, God, there's. I'm trying to get this this woman who's the archaeologist there on the podcast, but um, they had one of the guys. And I'm spacing his name out now, but he was a British. He was in 104 different engagements. He had one eye. He wow. was, like, totally, totally debilitated by his life as a warrior. Um, and he was this ferocious abolitionist. And that was part of what drove his, um, his desire to run Fort Gadsden and keep it going. Because, of course, that was Spanish territory then. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, there, there's a town in the Bahamas called Nichols, Nicholstown. And they're they're the descendants of the people that Nichols is this guy's name, uh, got out of their own own ships.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, he was
1: he he just believed that um, the American institution of slavery was was like he was in the early anti slavery stuff on the coast of Africa, mm-hmm. but he just thought that this was an evil that uh, he personally could help to by arming the maroons and yeah. by, by shipping people out down the Appalach River. And some of them ended up in Trinidad, but the ones that named the village after him was are in the Bahamas.
0: That's wild, man.
1: Yeah. Uh it, what it what it, what it blew my mind was was that there were lots of people of conscience at that time. And I was telling you I was in Macon County, Alabama, and there were like all these letters going like I don't think we should do this. I don't think we're gonna win this war. Yeah. Like there were lots of people and at least and-
0: just self aware enough to know.
1: Yeah, and then people like Nichols who honestly saw it for what it was, mm. you know, um, and so in every time there are people who are people of good conscience that see it. I mean, I'm sure in the French Revolution there are people going like, "Whew, that Robespierre! I don't think this is going to end well."
0: Yeah, this is <laughs> this is getting gnarly, <laughs> man. Uh, whenever man, whenever, yeah, you have to start when you have to just start destroying people. Yeah. To solidify your position, man, like it's it's an inherently uh, shaky structure you're building it on. Right? That's right, and that will eventually fall down on top of you. Right, uh, it's 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 why I'm so. I, I've just I feel like I'm just conditioned to uh, to be fearful of totalitarianism. Yep, and even if it seems like it's working out for me, like it ain't gonna work out for me for long.
1: It never has. Yeah. There, there have like, uh, like I was listening to Bill Gates when he came back from China. This was like fifteen, sixteen years ago, and he was like, they oh, can really get stuff done over there." Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I bet they can.
1: And I was just like, "Oh no," <laughs> like, like, like you're you're a mile deep and an inch wide, dude. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, "Yeah, they could really get stuff done." I mean, Stalin really got stuff done too. Yeah, you know. So did so did Pol Pot for a while. Sure i mean good lord um i mean that
0: whole stalingrad shit you know they talk about the the russian winner what really won that was inexhaustible troops yep you know what i mean Conscript conscription service and sending a hundred thousand people to just get waylaid and keep you them got going. A, another hundred thousand Yep. and you know that the you know quote-unquote equality too like Stalin wasn't messed up about it, man. He sent 50,000 women down there. Yep. You know, yeah. like stuff no one else was doing. Right. He's like, nah, man. Like, we will wear you out.
1: Yep. And they, and they did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: At tremendous cost.
1: Yeah. And it, it's interesting. Uh, we go back to, uh, I was talking years ago. This was an, and with Anthony Bourdain did that show up here. And he was telling me that Russia was the most inscrutable place that that he had ever been. Because you have like the poet Akhmatova. You have Tolstoy. You have um, um, Proudhon, you know, the anarchist theorist. He said you have the the heights of, like, intellectual achievement and stuff. And then you just have this, like, kind of brutality, too. Same place. Yeah. Same people. Same DNA, you know. And um, I was just fascinated by that. And I got interested and started reading more. And, like, if you read the 900 days, you know, the account of the siege of Stalingrad. Okay. I mean, they all have a big stamp, you know, do not fuck with me like a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cuz it's like it just goes on and on and on. It's just and it's um it's fascinating to me. It really is. That, I'm that, sorry what they're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a waste of their talents.
0: Uh you know, man, that's yeah. It's uh and it's going to it's going to have very 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 long standing uh ramifications
1: we don't even know what they are yet yeah yeah
0: i mean i can't even really imagine it's weird to think though too though
1: that like that you know people have always been coming for ukraine yep it's got the dirt yeah yeah there's a book um and it's, it's by this englishman fred somebody it's called the land grabbers and it's if it, this was back in a much more peaceful time like early 2000s mm-hmm. not peaceful for us in the middle east but globally there was sure. less going on and uh he was talking about the people who are buying land in the in the world, right? The Chinese had acquired Smithfield Foods in America. Yeah. And then um the Saudis were they knew they had the desert, right? And they wanted to buy. They had their cash rich and dirt poor. Mm-hmm. And one of the places they were buying was Ukraine. It's yeah. it's, it's like the, they were they had identified the bread baskets. Mm-hmm. and they were investing there. And he, and he wasn't saying this is something bad. Like it's just this is what it is, right? That's dirt. You got dirt, you got adequate rainfall, somebody needs it.
0: Well, you know uh do you know who the the largest private landowner in the state of Arkansas? is? Who's up? Bill Gates.
1: Well, is that farmland?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like really 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 productive
1: delta. Yeah. Right? Uh I mean, you know I mean that's wild. a yeah, it's wild. And it's, and uh, I think So the other one was down in Paraguay where they were like opening up the new like soybean world mm-hmm. and southern Brazil and Paraguay. And they were just, I mean, it was, it's an international commodity.
0: Well, and, it's also a way to, I mean, if you really start looking at it, you know, that Game of Thrones quote. Like, I try and imagine uh, like what someone's worst intentions could be. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've, like, this wealth that, you know, I mean, I guess Mansa Musa actually had more wealth, but, like, other than him, the greatest collection of wealth that's been held by a few people, right? Right. And what do you turn that into as as far as, like, a, a, a means of power? You lock up water and, and, and arable land, yeah. Yeah,
1: that's it,
0: yeah. And then, you know, you get, I mean, you can do anything with those two things. Yep. More more important than fuel.
1: Yep, by far. Because we don't live without it. Yeah, I mean nobody does. Yeah, you know that's that John Jeevens quote is um all of our all of our arrogance, our artistic endeavors, you know, whatever, beautiful and and ill rely on the fact that there's four inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Mm. You know, I mean that's why they're in the Ukraine.
0: Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, they they put everything else on it, but. Yeah, and it's yeah. always been like that bread ga- basket of that area. Yeah, I mean, a hundred. I mean, the the uh, Ottoman Empire was yep was deep in there. You know, yep, uh, really very fascinating place. The more I've I've kind of looked at it, uh, just historically, super super fascinating. Yeah, um,
1: it's been a it's been a cry. well. Somebody told me years ago about uh, the aftermath of World War II. Somebody said, you know, if you if you can walk there somebody's on his way yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you're and interconnected by land to every like major freaking conquesting power on earth mm.
0: yeah and you're right if they can walk there
1: except for us yeah 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 that's i mean
0: part probably part of our our ability to get uh, americans ability to get to the level of power was was that oceanic isolation
1: it's all it is yeah. it's huge it's huge
0: we, we would not have been, we we wouldn't have been uh, allowed to get to the point that we were at if folks could get at us
1: quickly. No. Well, we'd have, we'd have been, we'd have had a lot more to deal with. Yeah. Right.
0: You'd have folks on multiple, multiple fronts. Fronts, that's right. Right? That's like right. The, I mean, look at how quick the, the Germany took over France.
1: Yep. Because you can walk there.
0: I mean, quick. Yep. It's like a matter of days, and they're like, they're at the Eiffel Tower. Yep. <laughs> you know, like. The wildest stuff ever, and they'd uh, done it before,
1: like during the Prussian War,
0: yeah, you know, yeah yeah, yeah, that uh, yeah, I was you know what really happened, man, was like the Ukraine situation started, and so that's how I got on all that despot stuff, but then just kind of researching the history of like where all this stuff came from, just the last hundred years of European history, yeah, and uh, really wild, how quick uh how quick stuff. Can just be completely upended yep. and and what what uh what really grinding somebody uh, what the result is, like just beating somebody down like if you look at the Treaty of Versailles or Versailles, how you would say it, and the the prohibitions like what France and great britain uh how they punished Germany mm-hmm. for World War one. I mean that directly led to the to the third Reich because yep. they just they beat them down to humiliation to where built the the resentment was yep. palpable.
1: Yeah, a humiliation of a, of a of a proud people and the, and they were people who had come out of um, the 30 years war. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty intensely warlike. Right? That like they they had had a lot of the chaff was winnowed away. Yeah. Probably too much, almost like Sparta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean they referenced it. The third Reich referenced that a lot. Sparta. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um and yeah, I just think it's I think as a practical matter it's it's dangerous it's dangerous to uh to just try and dominate people. Yeah. Like it 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 never works out. <laughs> one of
1: my favorites is um is like I was doing this research on Audubon, John James Audubon, mm-hmm. and um one of the you know the reason he got to Florida was the Haitian Revolution, right? They or, were no, I didn't know that. One. Yeah, his people were in Haiti, and um when Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines and them took over and got rid of all the French mm-hmm. slave owners, um he was he was they were ejected from he got away. He was a child, a yeah. little child. And so he ended up living in North America. Um, but that changed everything, too. They were uh, they were pushing... The French were kind of... They were pushing that. They powder kegged Haiti with brutality. Mm-hmm. And then, buddy, they got paid back. Yeah. Hard. And I remember... Um, and that's, that, and
0: that's not necessarily meaning... I do want to clarify this. That doesn't necessarily mean that the... The response is righteous. Obviously, right. we're talking about Germany. It was, it was monstrous. It's just that, it seems to be there will be a response.
1: There will be a response. You're tapping the powder down. You know, you're hitting the powder with a hammer in the in the in the pipe.
0: Yeah, it's just it's safer to just regularly let the steam off of stuff. Yep. You
1: and know? also, uh, I mean, we human beings can't do it. But it's also nice to like you know. Honor your brother and do the golden rule and shit and then nobody has to chop anybody's head off. Yeah. At least in the short term.
0: <laughs> but there's always somebody that just can't Can't do it. They just yeah.
1: it's it's what I've wondered. I mean, dude,
0: Bezos money, Elon Musk money, there's there's no part of me. If I got a fraction of that, you would never see me again. Dude,
1: we're we're doing this corner crossing podcast tomorrow.
0: hmm
1: And um The the man who owns that land is a billionaire who owns fifty one square miles. My God! And this used to be called at this um, Leo Sheep Company. It was what they had this Safari Club thing. Not well, not the Safari Club International, but they called it the Safari area. Okay, it's like the best hunting ever, right? And this dude is obsessed with the fact that four guys from Missouri stepped across a corner of public land to access another section of public land within his 51 miles
0: yeah <laughs> and,
1: you're, and you're actually
0: talking if you really reduce that down you're talking about infinitesimally small
1: I can't believe it like like uh but but it goes if you go back through this history stuff people have always done that like bad like like people who I, I consider them the the hungry ghost. Ooh. You know that idea where there's nothing can fill the hole, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. just you have an insatiable hunger for X, Y, or Z. And it's like it's like you go to the mat, and often these people, this is their downfall, not necessarily in this case, but that they just simply couldn't abide four guys on public land hunting within their fifty one mile fiefdom.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, it's just amazing. It's gotta be a it's
0: it's got to be a wholly unsatisfying way to live a life. And I I also think that it, you know, you might be inclined to think that this is how someone is, right? But I think that it's, I think it's also the result of power. It's very few people get power and don't either want more of it yep. or want to maintain it. Right. Almost no one gets power and then steps away from it.
1: Right. In that and, and, you know, let's go back now to um, the United States of America, right? Okay. Who in the world has a successful revolution against a major power, major colonial power, uh, fights a knockdown, drag-out war, and then writes a constitution which limits your powers— Completely. Yeah. Like, like this is a this is a once in a lifetime gig, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, once yeah, in yeah. once in a once in a, a millennia deal. The United States of America, for all of its fall, fall, fallibility, for all of our failures and our uh, atrocities, it's a once in a millennial deal, millennium deal. I mean, who does that and writes a constitution which limits the power that you have taken? Well,
0: yeah, it's just also to be fair, the people that were making those new rules were setting up a system that worked really well for them, correct, you know what I mean right so it sure. was still it was still a uh imperfect, yeah, I mean, they were still creating an American aristocracy correct. they were they were just the ones on on top right, uh so I mean I don't want to over romanticize it but I just the I po- think it's pretty amazing the though.
1: potential
0: involved in it is what's so amazing to me. Yeah. Just the potential. Uh And you know most people fall short of their potential.
1: Absolutely. You know what yeah, I mean that's
0: right. I, micro and macro scales but just, but having potential is is so is so amazingly special cuz I feel like I feel that's potential is the most human thing and it's the limiting of someone's potential is the most monstrous thing. Yeah. And you can limit someone's potential uh with social disadvantages, with physical incarceration, just microaggressions, beating somebody down, yep. anything. Yep. But it's it's not allowing someone to reach their full potential self-determined potential is is the most evil thing
1: yeah that's inc- that's cool yeah you know and you can do it just that. by
0: destroying somebody killing somebody right that's uh what's that line from uh that movie unforgiven you know what i'm talking about with oh, uh, yeah. with morgan freeman and uh clint eastwood mm-hmm. and he said funny thing about killing a man you kill everything they are and everything they possibly could be wow dude and it's a that's a great that's line. a hell of a great that's yeah. a hell of a great movie
1: yeah that's it it is a great movie no.
0: I'm, I'm here to kill you, uh, what do you say, I'm here to kill you, little Bill, for what you did to my friend.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: God, that's a good movie.
1: And then they go, are you the same William Money who blew up the so-and-so railroad train killing innocent men, uh, women, and children? And he goes, I am.
0: I'm here to kill you, <laughs> yeah. Murder of women and children, Gene Hackman going off yeah. on him, and I'm here to kill you.
1: Dude. Oh, dude,
0: I, that's that movie is so damn good. Uh, Dude, Clint Eastwood kind of got weird here in the last few years, <laughs> man. But God, I love that guy, man. Yeah, he's still got it. He's got, dude, and he's some of his quotes like I say, uh, I say buzzards got to eat same as worms all yep. the time. <laughs> it's it's so that movie Hang 'em High, mm-hmm. where he like paints that town red. Yeah, and oh, dude, that movie is like a weird Western yeah. acid trip, man. Yeah,
1: High Plains Drifter too, dude. And then uh, my old man loved uh, my father loved uh, two mules for sister Sarah. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. just a movie he loved. He got, he was like, you gotta see this movie. You gotta see it. And that was about before VCRs or anything, right? Yeah. And yeah, eventually got to see it. It's pretty good. It's it's wild. It's bizarre. You know, I,
0: there's those old westerns. I mean, I've talked about before. They're so influential to me. You've, have you seen the Red-Headed Stranger? Yes. With Willie Nelson. Oh man? yeah. Oh yeah. That's dude. He wrote. Who is his that, his wife in that movie? Was a. Uh, Morgan Fairchild Uh and dude he like you know he's this preacher and his uh, wife runs off with this eastern guy and he just kind of gives it up and he like rolls up on him in a uh, in a bar and sees him and there's just a moment of recognition (laughs) and it just blows him away yeah and it's I mean look it's I don't think that would be nice to do in real life but as far as just an American vigilante vehicle yeah it's great man
1: What now? The now the something is over, and the killing's begun. Yeah, and then that's the first album I ever bought, dude. And that
0: soundtrack, yeah, man, it's, dude, Willie Nelson, he's a, man, he's a, he's a special. He could only come from America.
1: Yep, you know. And he was wild too, like, but he was always he's a really gentle person. Yeah. Um. The uh. Dude, I was so I. I'm about. I guess I was 11 years old, maybe 10. And I was up late at night in our playroom. which was before we lived out in the country. And uh, so I would have been nine. And uh, that, the Red-Headed Stranger advertisement was running on <laughs> late night TV. Yeah. No video, no nothing. Just a picture of R- Willie Nelson and the album. Mm-hmm. And I, bu- I went to the store and bought it. That's awesome. It was a Magnavox store that sold, uh you know, LPs. Yeah, yeah. And I bought – that's the first album I ever bought. And the second one was um, Waylon and the Outlaws, which had Willie on it, right? Yeah. And Tom Paul Glazer. Uh, but that album was the first one. And I must have – I mean, I played it, like, over and over and over again. The Red-Headed Stranger. Dude, yeah. It works on so many levels. It's a cool cover to that record, yep. too,
0: man. Uh, I had a buddy in college that had that record, you know, because it's got, like – hit if i remember it's like his face like kind of framed and, yep that's it yeah uh dude yeah oh willie we, i was talking to someone about willie nelson and that guitar of his trigger and that's skull
1: wore out yeah, yeah yeah which
0: i love he's got that hole and you can trace it through the years him wearing it down i mean he's not really a great guitar player and he just he just attacks that thing mm-hmm. but someone called a. Did you ever watch any of the Harry Potter stuff, or read those books?
1: I have not. My, my daughter certainly did, and my so, son.
0: So someone said there's this idea that, that there's this like evil guy in those uh, those stories. that Voldemort. Voldemort, yeah. yeah. The way he makes himself invincible is he takes pieces of himself and places it within objects. and They're called his horcruxes. And so you can't kill him without destroying all the horcruxes. Gotcha. Right? And uh, this dude was telling me, he's like, that, that guitar is Willie Nelson's horcrux. Mm-hmm. He's like, if anything ever happens to that, he'll, he's
1: gone. Yeah, he's gone. You're yeah, like disappointed. <laughs> up here like dust yeah yeah
0: yeah wow. he's linked he's linked to it <laughs> that's cool uh well shit man this has been a good this has been a good long podcast Ooh, man we're approaching i think i've got one podcast that's a little bit longer than this but uh well i've had a good time yeah man honestly i'm i could keep doing it but uh those two pots of coffee we drank are telling me i need to stop
1: yeah i got it too i'm a, and i've got a i'm doing uh snake river dams interviews and I'm I'm brushing up on Snake River dams right now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You got stuff to do. I need to I need to drive to Missoula and uh, I guess rendezvous today's. I think. Yeah, pe- yeah. People are there now, and yeah, it'll it's starting really...
1: to show up. I got a- call. That's what that call I had this morning. I hadn't. I don't know who it was, but that's where they were from. They were showing up there.
0: Yeah, I need to go find a, uh, I need to go find a spot a- away from the bonfire. because mm-hmm. I got I can't be listening to hooting and hollering. No, you're
1: man. in the van, man. Yeah, yeah. That's that's right up against the hooting and hollering. Oh, you I thought him. you could get
0: away a little bit. You can,
1: you can. Plus, there's there's a there's a world of camping around there too. If you got like it's like we used to go to Mardi Gras, you know. Yeah. And I had an apartment uptown, and that was the best thing. That's the best way to do Mardi Gras on the face of this earth would be to take the streetcar or walk forty blocks mm-hmm. to the unbelievable mayhem. And then, when you got wore out, you would take the streetcar or walk forty blocks back to your apartment. Yeah and be completely it – it's like completely sc- cool and silent.
0: Dude, I mean oh, – That's shit. the way to do rendezvous too. Honestly, what I might need to do is uh, when I decide it's time for me to bed down, just drive 30 minutes outside of Missoula and just find – I've been digging this sleeping on the side of the road because out west they've got all these big wide spots because you'll be out in the middle of nowhere with no signal for so long. I'm sure lots of people like truckers got to pull over and whatever. Right. So you can get like a wide spot. You can be 40 feet off the road. Right. Uh and it's like pitch black out there, man. And right. if anybody does come through, they're not worried about some guy in a van. And it man, some of the best sleep I've gotten in a mm-hmm. long time. Pretty cool. Yeah, man. I got my little I switch into my sweatpants, man. I, <laughs> I get all comfy and then I yeah, get under my blankets and uh sleep
1: great, man. Yeah.
0: And then wake up with that early sun. I dig that I dig that sun being up. At five o'clock it's daylight.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it makes that's it, why I was telling you to move that thing this morning because everybody else starts moving in the summer around here. Yeah. They start moving 5 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When I was in Idaho yesterday, I was, like, looking for a cup of coffee, and I stopped at this little stand, and, uh, I mean, shit was going. Yep. Right? And I look at the lady, I'm like, hey, uh, are we on Pacific time or mountain time here? Because I've just been driving, whatever, and she's, uh, oh, we're on Pacific time, right, with that little accent. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I was like, so it's 547? And she's like, yeah. And I'm just, like, looking around, like, sun's up, just starting to be traffic. Yeah. I was like, dude, that's you can get a good long day in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Anyway, well, man, uh, so appreciate you. If folks want to, I mean, you've got the BHA podcast, so, like, if folks want to keep up with you, where do they go to?
1: BHA um, podcast and blast. Um, I'm still, I've got some stuff at Field and Stream. My website's halherring dot com. Um, it's got my old like like twenty five years of journalism on it. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, like the movie we did on public lands with Patagonia—that's called Public Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think I'm proud to be a part of that. You're kind of like the cool.
0: driving force in that. Too. I'm, the, I'm the talking head. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, or the foil. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a blast doing it. I mean, we went everywhere from the Arctic. To like southern utah to new mexico um it was a it was a it was a great experience for me um I, i'm i have no doubt i mean i'm glad i threw in with that you know um and then i'm you know i'm just working running the podcast and doing some other stuff and working on this book which when,
0: a, when do you anticipate the book coming out
1: i don't know when it's going to come out but uh i need to have something definitive turned in within the next 10 months okay um, and I, that definitive meaning, uh, a, a big block of stuff so that I can then write a conclusion.
0: So we're, I mean, we're, we're a year and a half, two years out, you think? Yeah. We? Yeah. Well, something to look forward to. Uh, well, until then, I assume that how will be, uh, wearing out a pair of boots. remember yeah. That we're in God's pocket.
1: Yeah. Right on. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I just got back. I, I got home in time to go do some long, like backcountry country ski, couple of long backcountry ski trips and i'm i am man i I don't know about you know we've been around here like we're just there ain't nothing it's just what i do i fish for catfish on the missouri here in another three weeks i'll start doing that Mm -hmm. you know we elk hunt mule deer hunt just like it's a lifestyle that i have been involved in since i was about nine years old and i've never worn out my enthusiasm for it Oh have yeah, worn it's, out it's, a shitload
0: of boots. It's endless, though, right? You it's can endless. Keep turning. Have you have you killed a turkey before? No. Dude. Yeah, man. We got to get you on. Yeah. You would, it would resonate with you in a in a the communicative nature of it. Yeah. Uh, make sure I'm, I'm going to break you off some of that turkey meat before I get out of here. Okay. Man, because it's it's also such a rad change of pace uh, from like all that like red meat. Yeah. And it's there's no learning curve with it, yeah. You know, right? Like it's just super familiar, man. Like, mm-hmm. dude, like a little cutlet, man. I well, made some cutlets the other day with some morels. Nice, unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Well, people ask me that a lot because I grew up in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. But in my part of Alabama, the turkeys were gone, and now they're back, right? Mm-hmm. But I left there when I was 25 in '88. You know, '89. And there wasn't any turkey hunting in Madison County or Jackson County. It was probably
0: about like you left when it was about to turn. Yep. And then it was fifteen, twenty years of just unbelievable turkey hunting. And now it's in the southeast it's starting to, starting to take turn a, back. Take a dip, man. Yeah. But, uh yeah, no, Alabama's like heart of Southern Turkey. It was turkey southern culture, turkey hunting.
1: Man. And uh Dover, um all that South Alabama and then uh yeah, man. I mean, I, I was I I witnessed the return of the wis you know the Wisconsin whitetail to Alabama too, when when I was when 1975.
0: So, oh, did they have to bring deer down from there? Really? Yep. And now, is Alabama. I I can't remember. If it's I mean, Georgia, it it one a day. Yep. Can you kill one a day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like all season long, there's some dude that kills a hundred deer yep. every year. Yeah, that's wild.
1: Yeah, you know, and I and uh, I remember so, but one of the we I know we I gotta go too, but the, uh, one of the things that happened there was there was an old rabbit hunting beagle culture,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, when the whitetails got reestablished, the beagles had never been deer trained, right? Yeah, and they're the best thing to chase. Like you're, you're a beagle, you got rabbits. Rabbits are great, but like look at this thing, right? Sure. So the beagles would just disappear. They I I, I picked up a beagle as a little kid whose paws were completely worn off. Like, down to, down, to, down to the blood. He had run himself. He was such a hot dog, right? He was like, he, he was the real thing. And and he couldn't stop. And we picked him up and uh, rehabbed him. He had a collar on, gave him back to the people.
0: Yeah, I've seen them just on a day hunt. Their noses and their tips of their tail will get bloody just right. from, like, because they're going through all the briars and all that crazy stuff, yep. man. And they're, like, they're unaffected by it, like they're just—they're driven so much by that desire. Fire, man. Yeah, yeah, I love it. They're cool critters, and they're like little, and I mean, you know, they're about as big as a raccoon, man. Yeah, and they're, they
1: got to have short legs, otherwise the rabbit will go in a straight line, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they're—they're. They're, that's a holy shit. That's a whole nother thing. I'd like to go, do more of that too. That's
0: fun, dude. Well, I'll tell you what, man. uh, Come down to Arkansas, dude. We can. There's opportunities to do it. You want to come catch? We'd go trot line for catfish and. I just like I said I just wrote this article for Backcountry Journal and it's it's about this father and son that are two doors down from my place that cool that's what they do is they run uh they run these uh these beagles man and dude is oh man it was so cool too cuz like the dad on this like this dude Tony and Tony Jr man and the dad is this real kind of cool stoic dude like got like a gold tooth You know, and just even the way he like sits there and would stand and wait for the dogs to run a rabbit by. He just Mm -hmm. looked kind of G'd out, just like Mm -hmm. just lean on Mm -hmm. a man. But then he just like pops up and this just super competent, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and just like grew up, grew up doing it. He was also he's one of him. He might be the he might be the third black dude I've ever seen that dipped. Mm -hmm. Like you know, like old black people would do snuff. Snuff for sure. But like straight up, just pulled up a dip and stuck it in his mouth, Uh man. But even the way he did that was cool. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that old sloppy, just like
1: (laughs) slobber hanging out, man. He
0: just—I don't even know if I ever saw him spit. He might have been so cool he just swallowed it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But anyway, well, uh, yeah, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. All the way through to this episode of the Black Duck Revival Podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Also, per usual, if you want to follow what I'm doing or uh, book a class or a hunt or a fishing trip, anything like that, take a look at some of the collected writings of one Jonathan Wilkins. Uh, You can most easily do that by... Going to BlackDuckRevival.com or following me on social media. Uh, Instagram is where I'm most active and that handle is just Black Duck Revival. There's going to be some cool stuff happening this fall. We're going to do a couple different kinds of classes that aren't as hunting heavy and are designed to be a a little bit more of an entry point for folks. Uh, Maybe a little bit more accessible uh, dollar bill wise. Because, I mean, truthfully, waterfowl hunting can get expensive. So we're going to have some other cool opportunities. So stick around and you'll learn more about that in the coming weeks and months. Please tell somebody about this podcast. If there's one that you really like, posting it on uh, like your IG stories or just telling a friend or an acquaintance, an enemy even. That helps uh, that helps out tremendously. And it helps just keep this... Uh, this content and the public zeitgeist so hopefully more people listen to it and we can find a way to uh, at least have it break even we got to get to break even right all right so uh thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time